had he not seen what he saw, I don't think we would have gone out there no. that night. We have to go up on the mountain. There's definitely fear about what you might find. Welcome. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, a podcast that tells real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I think what was maybe more unusual about that storm in 85 was the, the length of it. It went on and on, and there was a lot of moisture. I remember it just pouring rain in the valley. In this episode of The Fine Line, Jim Woodmincy and Rennie Jackson describe how a 1985 rescue unfolds after an unexpected September snowstorm. This episode is sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef provides the latest healthcare information to students, researchers, and practicing clinicians. Find us online at statref.com. Rennie Jackson. I worked at Jenny Lake for 34 years, except for two years I was up at Dunnally National Park. Jim Woodmency worked at Jenny Lake 14 summers. First party was the Finley party with Greg, Mills Green, John Athow, the party of three. And they were all young in the early 20s. And then the second party was from Seattle. That was Paul Johnson and Ken Webb. They were older than us at the time, near 40. And as far as our party of four initial responders, that was myself and Jim and Leo Larson and Randy Harrington. I think both parties decided that they were going to go fast and light, which is sort of the alpine way back then. If you're going to go light, you better be fast. And the morning of the 12th, and these guys hadn't come back, and people were worried about them, and somebody called. Normally, people are given a full day after they were due back, unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance, like some knowledge of some problem. But usually people are given that extra day, you know, because that's, it often takes an extra day. For some reason, the ball started rolling on this one that morning. We ordered a helicopter, and this was when Ken Johnson was still flying for the park. We made an attempt to enter Garnet Canyon in this helicopter, and we were unable to get past the platforms because of the wind speeds. Ken turned around and we landed at Lupin Meadows and said, this will be a ground response. The rescue coordinator, who was Pete Armington, directed the two of us to go to Lupin Meadows and start walking up to the lower saddle to see what we could see. The Park Service maintained a, an equipment cache up at the saddle, mm-hmm. probably the same large metal box that contains the stuff to this day. And so we knew we had, you know, ropes and climbing Extra gear, sleeping bags, tents, sleeping bags, pads. stoves. Yeah, we, had, we would keep food up there, you know. You know, so we weren't going trolls. like full on 70 pound packs. This is about, what, seven and a half miles and about 5,000 vertical gain to get to the lower saddle. Usually takes those kind of packs, probably four, four and a half hours. In good conditions, dry conditions. We could see about where the snow line was. We could tell there was quite a bit of snow up high. So we just went into full winter mode with double plastic boots and crampons and big puffy coats and extra everything. By the time we got to the moraine, there was drifts of snow that were you know, three feet deep, almost hip deep in places. So we were plowing through some snow 
then at the caves. The tent we stopped at. Somehow we figured that was the Finley party. I think there was like three people's worth of gear in there. There's sleeping bags, of course, in there. And, uh, but things that gave us some alarm were that their you know, puffy coats and headlamps were still in there. And you know, we knew they didn't get out before first light. So going from the caves, you're still probably only at about maybe not quite 10,000 feet there. That next couple of thousand feet is significant. You could be standing at the caves going, it was a pretty nice day, and then you get to the saddle and the wind's blowing and it's colder. And if you dress for the caves and you're going to the summit, you better keep moving because, or have extra clothes. Given the fact that it was, you know, this storm had turned into a winter type storm, and based on what they had left, it was all stuff that you would want and, and more to be able to survive something like that. I, I think we had kind of a sinking feeling at that point. We just continued our way up, and like Jim was saying, we immediately started running into, you know, drift, drifted snow, and I mean, it was pretty full conditions just getting to the base of the fixed line. The rope was pretty icy, iced up. And we, you know, kept going and got up to the lower saddle, and the the wind speeds were the significant thing um, when we we got there, of course. Yeah. Um, Invisibility was was really bad at the saddle too. You know, just getting from the top of the fixed rope to uh, over to the the hut. Once we got geared up, we decided to make a foray up higher on the off chance that we would hear a voice or you know see something. I wasn't very hopeful, but I do remember the wind was such that we were getting blown around and knocked down. And About 80, 90 mile an hour gusts were, we were kind of hugging that leeward side as I remember it, maybe over dramatizing a little bit, but almost crawling just because you're, you're down so low, trying to avoid being knocked over. The plan was to try to make it up the descent route to the upper saddle and evaluate from there. And we weren't really equipped at this initial reconnaissance, you know, thing to yeah. go any further, really, because, I mean, we didn't, we didn't take ropes and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're yelling, yelling the whole time and getting, you know, you wouldn't be able to necessarily get a response yelling just because the wind, you know, takes the sound away. And we went back down to the hut. Yeah. Back to spend the night. Leo and Randy were coming up. And I remember how hard it was for us to, to navigate from the top of the fixed rope to the hut. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I'm going to walk down and give them a light to come to. And that was my plan, just put a headlamp on and, and start walking down towards the top of the fixed rope. And I don't know what compelled me to, to do that. I just thought it was a nice gesture because they just had a long, grim hike uphill. It's dark just to give them a little more comfort. But when I was out there, um, there was a few breaks in the clouds. And I remember stopping and kind of looking up uh, towards, the, towards the Grand and, and uh, thinking I saw a star. And I thought, oh, it's clearing up. The clouds had lifted, but the sky wasn't, I don't think, clear enough to see stars yet. And I thought, oh, that's kind of odd. So I just, I, I don't even remember really what 
caused me to do it, but I, I ended up just flashing my light three times, and I got three flashes back. Had he not seen what he saw, I don't think we would have gone out that night. But this one event sort of changed everything. You're listening to The Fine Line, sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef, the premier healthcare e-resource, enables students, researchers, and practicing clinicians to intuitively cross-search full-text titles, journals, and evidence-based point-of-care tools. With nearly 600 resources within over 50 healthcare disciplines, StatRef provides the latest healthcare information in a customizable and convenient format. Find us online at statref.com. In this episode, Jim Woodmincy and Rennie Jackson are describing how a 1985 rescue unfolds after an unexpected September snowstorm. A park climbing ranger at the time, Woodmincy can't quite believe what he's seeing as stormy weather pounds the mountain. Standing out there in the dark by myself and in winter conditions, just, you know, and I'm knackered, I'm tired already. I'm thinking, well, maybe my mind's playing tricks on me. Maybe it was the snow crystals blowing around in, in my headlamp that, that I was seeing. We'd been so intent the last few hours trying to get some kind of clue if there was somebody up there, you know, a voice, you know, a light, a footprint in the snow, anything. You know, things had changed all yeah. of a sudden. And we had, we knew we had, someone was alive up there. And they couldn't have been very alive, not given the conditions. So we have to go up on the mountain now. There's definitely fear about what you might find and just trepidation in, in the fact of, you know, what is it going to take for you to be able to hang out up there through the night. So we started putting together these massive loads. We were stuffing backpacks with sleeping bags and pads, and I think we even tent. took a little tent. We did take a tent. Stove, we took stove, fuel, pot. We took climbing gear. We took ropes. Pot. We placed that light in the Wall Street couloir eventually, or near yeah. the bottom of it. Yeah. So we knew where we had to go. It's a strange place where you don't normally go. You traverse across it getting to the upper Exxon Ridge, but you never go... Never go below that point. Yeah, down low in that couloir. They took a left turn at the upper saddle. They got down the uh, the upper rappel point. You kind of come down that rib, and then instead of peeling right into the Owen descent, you're you get sucked left. And And if you go left and you don't know the turn off to the black chimneys. Which which, isn't obvious. Yeah, which is not obvious. It's a little slot, actually. But if you don't know where that is, you simply keep going down this bouldery, you know, scree couar, which is what I suspect they did. And you go and you go until it ends up in cliff bands. Everything changes with a with a good coating of ice and you know snow drifts over it for sure. Terrain that you're just scrambling over when it's nice dry rock is completely different. You you would find yourself having to move a whole bunch of snow away from the rock and then scratching your way up with crampons, which is basically what we were doing, mm-hmm. you know, getting to these folks. We went the normal way up through the eye of the needle and the crawl through that little cave area and that was 
That was very drifted in with snow. Right after that, you come to the belly roll almost, which is a little technical step around. We probably belayed that. Well, I think we were roped from the, the needle, or the eye of the needle. Just below the needle, all yeah. the way up and over the ridge. With these loads, you know, you get un unbalanced fairly quickly. Yeah, anybody who's climbed the ground before knows it's not trivial. I mean, the route finding is the greatest obstacle, even on a good day. For these guys not being familiar with it, being in the dark in a snowstorm, and becoming increasingly hypothermic, they had everything going against them. That's a lot of risk factors that are stacking up. And not being prepared to spend the night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, at least we were that. Yeah. We, we felt like we had enough stuff uh, that we could spend a reasonably comfortable night sitting anywhere on the mountain. Well, at this point in time, it was their second night out right. in the storm. Yeah. Which is... And it's getting colder. It's, that's um, kind of mind-boggling, actually. At the time, I, I, what I remember is that we had air temperatures that were in the low 20s or, or close to 20 degrees Fahrenheit at 12,000 feet. If you factor in the wind chill, it would have put it down below zero Fahrenheit, September. I've had better days up there, February. Yeah. You and Randy just in unison yelled loudly when once you were into the into the gully and Go got ahead. some kind of response. And then it was like, oh, okay. Because at that point, um, there was one guy at the top of that cliff, and then Greg Finley had rappelled over it. So I believe he had the headlamp. And so he was actually down and out of view. So as we're looking down the gully, we're not getting a light. There's no light anymore. He would have been the guy that was giving the response to your... Yes, he was the one that was flashing. Okay. So he must have been standing there on that ledge and looking down at, towards the saddle just by chance. And he was literally at the end of his rope. He was not going anywhere, up or down. And we started down once we got voice contact and I think we were all kind of bracing ourselves for what we might find. We had had some experience with hypothermia patients mm -hmm. before and we, at least in my mind, I, I knew that the altered mental status and behavior patterns can be pretty weird with patients like that. I was kind of nervous about that whole thing. But we made our way down to them and we got to one person who was... Uh, that was Paul Johnson. Paul he was Johnson. just kind of laying there, clipped in to the anchor, just kind of reclined. So we, got, we were able to get a little bit of information from him, enough to know that we had another person down at the end of this rappel rope that was right there. But there was no one else. He, he informed us that Athow had fallen off this cliff that we are now at the top of. But, but as to the whereabouts of the other, of the other two people, th this was a group of two separate parties who had one. joined forces. Yeah. Party of three and a party yeah. of two. So after talking to Johnson a little bit, we started making preparations to rappel down to the guy who was at the end of the rope. I volunteered for that task. and Thankfully. Went down there and I was pretty nervous about it. 
you know, repelling into the abyss in a place you'd never repel to on your own. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that today. I would have, I, I was more casual about repelling back in those days, and I have since become very, very cautious about it. And I, I do things a little bit differently than I probably would have back then. I don't even know if I had a prosthetic no. on. The... I mean, it's middle of the night, pitch black. It's snowing. It's cold. And it's like, yeah, I'm just going to rappel over this. Yeah, I'll just edge. wrap down there and see what yeah, this see guy's what, up to. See what's what. Yeah. Which he did. He was encrusted in frost. He was standing at, at, on a small stance. I cautiously approached the scene because I, you know, I was nervous about him being pretty out of it with hypothermia and I established voice contact and. I spoke with Greg, and he seemed like he was doing okay, just, you know, super cold, and so went down eventually to him. This was a guy who had been out for two nights. You know, probably the strongest of the he group. He still had it together. For sure. I was amazed. That yeah. Greg still had all his wits about him. Paul, I think, it was at a point where he was pretty much giving up. And when we reached him, I remember him looking back up at us and, mumbling almost incoherently are you the climbing rangers he was shutting down yeah totally for sure greg was still enough together that i could ask him you know he he said he couldn't feel his hands or his feet and he eventually had some pretty severe frostbite on both hands and feet lost some toes yeah like six of his toes or he was in tennis shoes but he he was coherent enough to describe his condition and we eventually made our way back up to the spot where everybody else was we were trying to get paul sandwiched between two of us uh trying to get a stove going get some water going that kept blowing out you know it continued to be a pretty grim situation i mean it'd be one thing for us to you know keep ourselves warm but so we had these two guys who were pretty severely hypothermic and frostbitten to to keep going and Greg's feet were badly frostbitten we didn't look at him but just from his description and how long he'd been out and his footwear we thought this isn't going to be good if we rewarm those he isn't going to be able to walk out of here we wouldn't have been able to do so we left his feet out which is the thing to do he'd been immobile it was circle the wagons time and just try to make it till dawn and so we could get some extra help up there. We still had three people unaccounted for. It cleared. That's what kind of got us going was that the wind had died down, the sky was clearing and you could actually see real stars. You know, as we were getting them down to the saddle, they were, they were slinging the other three bodies off the mountain. Sometimes it's just a matter of bad timing, whether it's a thunderstorm or you know, a season-ending snowstorm like that. If it happens the night before you're going to start your climb, then you don't do the climb. But if it happens to start in the middle of your climb, you're going to have to deal with it. Know when to turn around or retreat or have some backup plan. I think these guys had probably checked the weather a day or two before they departed the valley and there wasn't anything really on the horizon. You know, the forecast was fine. 
but things changed. They changed without them having any information to, to go on. They, they had no clue that there was a big storm coming. That certainly has changed. People basically have weather at their fingertips with a smartphone now that they only had in a weather service office back in 1985. I don't remember ever climbing the ground without taking some extra, either a fleece or a light puffy or something. I mean, I know I've climbed it from the valley floor to the summit and back in shorts and t-shirt and never changed my clothes all day, but I know I had extra stuff in my pack. One person from each of those two parties survived. Greg Finley and Paul Johnson. John Atow and Nils Green. So Nils would have been one of the gentlemen that expired in the gully from hypothermia. Atow went over the, the cliff. Ken Webb, who was also in the, in the gully, expired from hypothermia. Greg wasn't going down without a, a full fight. He, to me, even with frozen hands and feet, was still relatively sharp mentally, which is amazing. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.